Bibles with me, please, if you would, and open them to the New Testament letter of Philippians, the letter to the Philippians. It's a small four-chapter letter. If you remember the letter to the Colossians where we had been, you can turn there and just go to your left one letter, and you will come into Philippians. If you're in Galatians or 1st or 2nd Corinthians or Romans or Acts or anything like that, the Gospels keep going to your right until you stumble into Philippians, one of Paul's New Testament letters. Two weeks ago, we began this letter, walking through this letter, looking at verses 1 and 2 and laying the, the foundation and the background of the letter and trying to understand Paul's perspective, his reason for writing, the people he's writing to, so on and so forth. Today, we come into the actual body of the text. And Paul begins this letter much like he begins all his other letters with a section of thankfulness. Things that he is thankful about for a particular group of people. In fact, he begins every one of his letters this way, virtually every one that's written to a church, not an individual, except the letter to the Galatians. That's a whole other story. He's upset with the Galatians and he has little to say uh, that he's thankful for about them. But Philippians, although it's similar in its structure and similar in its beginning, is still very different from other letters of Paul because he's not writing just to say thanks, uh, to express thanks for them. He's writing in very affectionate terminology. In fact, if you look in verse 7 of chapter 1, he says, I hold you in my heart. In verse 8, he says, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. A wonderful picture of tender masculinity. A wonderful expression of a pastor's heart for his people. And we are led to believe through the whole letter these people's response back to him is identical. They hold him in their heart. They yearn for him with the affection of Christ Jesus. So while this letter might be similar in its beginning in terms of structure and, and content in the sense of saying thanks, it's Altogether different. It's very, very, very intimate, endearing, and personal. It's unmistakable as we read verses 3 through 11. We're not going to take all of those verses today, but as we look at those verses in particular, it's unmistakable to see there is a close relationship, continued relationship, and for today's point, a close fellowship between Paul and this church, even though... They're not physically present together. And that's one point or one note to hold in your mind here. Paul's going to be talking about, we're going to be highlighting the truths about Christian fellowship this morning. And notice that this fellowship exists even when they're not in each other's company. Which I think means for many of us we have to redefine what Christian fellowship is, right? Fellowship, according to the Bible, is not simply spending time together or sharing a meal together, or engaging in hobbies or activities together. The world does that. Christian fellowship is distinctly just that Christian. Which means it's founded upon, and it's centered upon, and it's geared around, and it's enveloped in and encompassed in Christ. It's marked by Christ, and more specifically, it's marked by the Gospel of Christ which fleshes itself out in the fact that Christian fellowship is existing in and resting in grace, isn't it? The power of grace. 
Not only God's power of grace shown to us in our own lives and our own hearts, but the grace that we show to one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. It's a fellowship that exists in forgiveness. Which means when one another happens to fall under the microscope, lots of grace and lots of forgiveness gets extended. As Christ has shown us mercy and compassion, we show each other mercy and compassion, don't we? Christian fellowship, it transcends our differences. We might have different backgrounds. We might come from different countries. We might come from different races. We might have different secondary views on secondary issues. But we are bound together, indeed tied together, knit together by something greater than those differences, namely Christ. Christian fellowship upholds the pursuit of godliness. It chases after what God loves and rejects and resists what God hates and it believes what God says is good and it flees from what God says is bad and dangerous. On the other hand, worldly fellowship by worldlians is a fellowship around like-minded people doing like-minded things in like-minded settings. And it is, by and large, temporary. I have never witnessed, in my personal experience, a worldly organization or a worldly group of people exist for very long together. Even if the name of their group exists for a long time, that group changes over time. The church is not like that, is it? church is bound by people who are tied together, even transcending space and time and generation and so on and so forth. We are a people, and our fellowship is a fellowship, according to the Bible, that's marked by its otherworldliness. It's marked by a divine element. And as we see with this church in Philippi and Paul, it's not even a fellowship that's geared towards gathering together or having a certain feeling towards one another. Rather, the Christian fellowship that the Bible talks about is geared towards a certain disposition towards one another, a tendency, a proneness towards one another. It's an orientation about our lives towards one another. And this is the kind of fellowship that Paul is blessed to have with these people. Again, a fellowship built on Christ and His Gospel, a fellowship that rests in the power of grace and forgiveness, a a fellowship that's bound up in love and in unity and in harmony, a fellowship that transcends differences and a fellowship that pursues godliness together. A fellowship that is absolutely otherworldly, not based on feeling, not based on physical proximity, based on the heart. In fact, it's this particular fellowship with the church in Philippi, as he'll tell us in chapter 4 and other clues throughout the letter, this fellowship with these people, this kind of Christian fellowship that sustains Paul, that has seen by Paul as a blessing from God to help him endure trials and persecution. And it is no less the kind of fellowship that the church is to live in and exist in. Look with me in chapter 1. We're just going to cover verse 3, 4, and 5 this morning. And highlight the kind of fellowship or the nature or the truths about the fellowship that Paul has with these People. And hopefully by the end I'll explain why I have chosen the word fellowship to describe these verses. 
In verse 3, he writes to them and he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the Gospel from the first day until now. The first thing that we want to take note of concerning the fellowship between Paul and this church, and that should be true for all churches, is it's a fellowship that's expressed. A fellowship that's not just harbored on the inside and, and kept secret or quiet or, or just good fluffy feelings, but it's a fellowship that's actually expressed. Paul begins by saying, I manifest my delight for you, my love for you, my thanksgiving for you by going to God for you. And I go to God in gratitude for you. That is the best way, the best act of love that can exist between two people, that can exist between a brother and sister in Christ. It is to take someone to the throne of God. A brother and a sister in Christ, church, will never do any better for one another than carrying each other to Jesus. Praying for each other. That's implied by Paul's statement here. It's not just that when he prays for them, he's only saying thank you to God for them. He's praying for their needs. He's praying for their faithfulness. He's praying for their trials. He's praying for their faith. He's praying for their growth. He's praying for their godliness, etc., etc., etc. That's implied here. Paul's fellowship with them, his relationship with them, is a relationship that gets expressed in the greatest and best of ways to God personally. So let's talk about real quick five things of the way Paul's expressing his thanks to God or, or five things that that means. Number one, his thanks for these people only comes in his relationship to God. Notice the, the language he uses, my God. It's an emphasis here. It's a personal phrase. It's a phrase that denotes a relationship. It's a phrase that's used often in this letter. And the point of it is this. Only in our relationship to God do we see brothers and sisters as something to give thanks for. Let me repeat that. Only in terms of our relationship to God personally can we begin to see other people as someone or something to be thankful for. Let's be honest. People are difficult, aren't they? And they're complex. And they're broken. And if we're going to be really honest and frank, we often make more mistakes than we do good. We often mess up more than we help. We often wreck more than we better. And it can be hard to exist with others. There is something appealing to me about going off with my family to the mountains, building my own cabin and just existing. There's something that pulls me towards that. But that's not God's design. As complex and as difficult and as challenging as it may be to be in relationship with each other, especially in the church when we are supposed to be redeemed but we're not yet perfect. Even in the midst of all of that, there's a way that we can be thankful for each other. Even when things are difficult, trying, complex, and the way that we are thankful for each other comes first and foremost in our relationship to God. It's in that relationship that we begin to develop a Godward perspective of each other. A Godward delight of each other. A Godward desire for each other. Walter Hansen in his commentary on this very verse says this very thing. He says, only in prayer to God 
can there be this consistent gratitude? For prayer with a Godward perspective focuses on God's gracious work in human lives no matter how fallen and needy those human lives are. No matter how difficult our brothers and sisters may be at times and we are all there towards one another at times, we can still be thankful for each other when we have a Godward perspective of His grace towards each other. Number two, Paul's thankful for them consistently and regularly. He says, In all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy. I regularly pray for you, and when I regularly pray for you, I am thankful for you. There's not a time that I go to the throne of God where I don't express gratitude that He has gifted you to me and me to you, that we have personal contact, that we know each other, that we have a relationship. Here's the point. Paul goes to God privately for them. He lays them before God privately. His expression of thanksgiving, his expression of fellowship is not just a public, arbitrary, abstract expression. It's a real, authentic, honest, I am thankful to God for you. I love you. I cherish you. I desire you. And I tell it to the Lord. Any, any claimed fellowship or any claimed love that we have, church, it must be backed up with a life of prayer for each other. It's easy to say that we have unity. It's very easy to say we love our brothers and sisters. It's very easy to say that we are thankful for each other. But if there's not the fruit of private, regular prayer for each other, those words mean very little. Thirdly, when Paul says that he's thankful for these people, he's crediting God as gifting them to him. He sees them as a gift. Often when we come to the word thanks or thanksgiving or gratitude in the Bible, it denotes this crediting that gets... Uh, placed on God. We credit Him for meeting the need. We credit Him for, for giving us a blessing. It's also an expression of dependency that we have a need and God has met that need or that, that God has lavished some blessing or goodness on us. It's remarkable. Paul looks at these people and he says, I see you literally as a straight good gift from the hand of God Himself. With all that's going on, all the struggles in your own church, all the division in your own church, you are still a blessing given to me directly from God. That's the kind of fellowship that the gospel produces. That's the kind of gratitude Paul's expressing. Not just thanks for the benefits I have from knowing them. Not just thanks for letting us have an association together once or twice a week. But Lord, I see these people as a gift. And I don't take your gifts lightly. Fourthly, the thanks that Paul expresses in verse 3 is a thanks that results in verse 4 in joy. It results in joy, which means... 
his commitment to these people, his love for these people, his thanks, his thanks for these people. Its genuineness is proven by the fact that when he prays for them, he's filled with joy for them. Notice that he doesn't say, I have joy when I see you. That's implied. It's, I have joy when I just think about you. This consistent, lasting, uplifting of my heart takes place when you enter into my mind. My affections for you are so deep. My yearning for you is so deep. My desire for you with my heart is so deep. I find joy in you. In in fact, chapter 4, he's going to call them. Verse 1. Well, let me just read it. He says, My brothers and sisters whom I love and long for my joy and crown. We tend to characterize our relationships by their difficulty. By the conflict that exists there. By the disappointment that we've had. That's that's where our minds tend to go when we think of relating to others or getting to know other people. Visiting with a friend even this last week about that very thing. Laboring and trying to make friends and only to be disappointed. I mean... We've heard the saying before, right? You'll come to the end of your life and maybe have three or four good, lasting friends. That's not the case with Paul. Years removed from being with them and hundreds of miles removed from them physically, he still says, you are a people that at the very thought of you I have lasting joy. Well, number five, and and this is most notable from verse three. This is the most important thing from verse three. How does Paul experience joy from these people? How does he give thanks for them? How does he see them as as a gift? It's because being thankful for Christian fellowship is inexplicable apart from the gospel. Paul cannot have a relationship with these people, and you and I can't have this kind of relationship with each other without the Gospel of Christ transforming us and affecting us. In fact, I would say, when Paul gives thanks here to God for these people, he's exemplifying a testimony of the Gospel's transforming work, both in himself and in them, and in his relationships with them. In fact, that should always be true, right? In fact, what Rod read today in John chapter 13, verse 35, all people will know that you're my disciples by what? The love that you have for one another. The way we relate to each other as Christians is meant to be a testimony to the power and efficiency and work of the gospel in our lives. Are relating to one another makes the gospel attractive or not? It credits it or discredits it. If we're bickering and fighting and resisting and hating and angry all the time with one another, the gospel is a hard message to believe. By the love we have for one another, we exemplify the love of Christ. Later in his life, John writes another letter and 
It's known as 1 John, and he makes it an even stronger point. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 7-12, through 12, he says, the love that you have for each other as Christians is unable to be divorced from your love of God. Directly connected to your salvation. He goes so far to say in that passage that if you love God, you will absolutely love your brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he says the opposite is true. If you don't love your brothers and sisters in Christ, he says, then you can bet on it. You don't know the love of God. His reasoning is clear as well. He says, because God is love. And He's proven His love to us. Not that we have loved Him first, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Then He says in verse 11, Brothers, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. You know what He's doing there? He's saying, if you claim to be Christian, it must be proven by the fruit of your love for your brothers and sisters. If there's no fruit of loving the people of God, then you don't know the love of God Himself. Furthermore, he takes it another step in that passage. In verse 12, he says, No one has ever seen God. But if we love one another, God's love abides in us. He's saying, not only do we testify to the power and the transformation that takes place in the Gospel when we love each other, we make God known by the way we relate to each other. This is what Paul's saying. His his thanks for these people is a testimony to the fact that the Gospel has done a radical work both in him and in them. Remember from a few weeks ago the background of these people in this church. Again, barring death or moving away from some reason, for some reason, it's safe for us to assume that the very first converts that we read about in Acts 16 are sitting in the congregation when this letter is read to the church. In fact, the letter may be being read in Lydia's house. And sitting over in the corner on the couch is this Philippian jailer and his family. And as I pointed out a few weeks ago, maybe this Philippian jailer is hearing Paul's letter read and he's remembering Paul's back being whipped. And if the Philippian jailer wasn't a party to his torture, he was at least a party to fastening the stocks around his ankles and chaining him up in the prison. Perhaps he remembers that. Perhaps sitting in the congregation is the lady in Acts 16 who had a demon that possessed her and she was fortune telling and Paul liberates her in the name of Christ, casts that demon out in the name of Christ. Perhaps she became a convert and she's sitting there in the congregation remembering God used that man as an instrument to liberate me. And we know for sure this church is filled with people with a background of pagan idolatry. Philippi was a Roman colony. The most prevalent religion in Philippi was known as the imperial cult. They worshipped the emperor and the royal family as God. Caesar Augustus is the emperor at the time here who has declared himself savior of Rome. And these people come from that background. And Paul comes from a very opposite background. Uh, He's going to tell them in chapter 3 the background he comes from. Self-righteous holiness of a Pharisee background. And we know how Pharisees felt about immoral pagans, right? And yet, 
Paul writes about this Philippian jailer who abused him. And this demon-possessed girl who annoyed him. And these immoral former pagan idol worshipers. And he says, I have nothing but thanks and joy for you people. People who were once enemies of Paul. At least potential enemies. People who once stood against everything that Paul was defending in the Gospel. People who otherwise he would have nothing in common with whatsoever. They're from a different country. They're from a different culture. They're from a different background. From different races. He looks at them and he says, You fill my heart with the joy of Christ. How? If not the Gospel changing his heart and their heart. Church, the Gospel has lasting and far-reaching influences in our lives. It changes the inside of us and it changes every relationship we come to. Charles Spurgeon said this very thought about this very verse. He said, Paul thought of them with devout gratitude to his God that there were such people in the world and that he had come into personal contact with them. And then Spurgeon says this, He knew the ins and outs of these people, and yet he could thank his God whenever he thought of them. You know how radical that is? You know how liberating that is? That there could be, there could be a, a kind of relationship that exists where somebody knows the ins and outs of me and still loves me. And is still thankful for me. And is still filled with joy at the thought of me and at the sight of me. That's liberating. That's refreshing. And that's the product of the gospel. We all yearn for that, right? You ever lay in, maybe I'm the only one, but you ever lay in bed at night and think, I wish I could just lay it all bare. And know that I would still be welcomed. I'd still be embraced. I'd still be approved. I'd still be loved. Well, Christ does that for us. And Christian fellowship does that for us as well. Or it's supposed to. The problem is twofold, really. We don't let people know the ins and outs of us. Because that's hard. Forsaking our privacy is hard. Especially in our context, we are Americans, right? We value liberty, and synonymous with liberty is privacy. But privacy doesn't really exist in the church. It's not supposed to. Somebody getting to know the ins and outs of me, the dark things, the secret things, the hidden things, the shameful things, the regretful things, that's hard. That's really hard. That's one side of the problem. The other side of the problem is I fear, fear we are too much like what Paul warned against in Galatians 6. We are a people who bite and devour each other. And I don't just mean us. I just mean it's the general attitude of the church today at large. We live in a very polarized society right now. And we have a really hard time right now dealing with disagreement or someone different than us. And so when there is someone different, when there is someone who disagrees, when there is someone who's not got it all together, when we 
know the ins and outs of a person, we're not as quick to be filled with joy and gratitude for them as Paul is. Paul knows the ins and outs of these people. He knows their shortcomings. He knows their backgrounds. He knows the differences that exist. And yet he still says, I'm thankful for you and I'm filled with joy at the thought of you. And the reason for that church is because the gospel. Just a side note. The gospel didn't have to just transform Paul. It had to transform them also. And I say that to say, sometimes we need to make ourselves easier to be thankful, thanked, thankful for. Easier to be loved. That's what I'm trying to get at. It's not all just on you having to love others. Sometimes it's on us having to be lovable. I remember from a few years ago, uh, I don't even know who preached it now, but a guy preached a sermon on Hebrews 13, 17. It's a passage that's important to me. It says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they're keeping watch over your soul as those who have to give an account. And then it says, Let them do this with joy and not with grumbling, because that would be of no advantage to you. And we often look at that phrase, submit, obey and submit to your leaders. That's where we focus because none of us really like that. But the point of this sermon was on the phrase, let them do this with joy. And the sermon illustration at the time was about uh, this man being a pastor and there were some members coming to him and when he would see them coming, there, it was not joy. There was defensiveness, there was fear, there was anxiety because this person was quarrelsome, conflicting, difficult, and, and that was their consistent regular way of living and, and so it wasn't easy to minister to them and he was laying out those sorts of thoughts it le- led me to tell Jamie one day that if I'm ever not in the ministry it will be my personal ambition and goal to, to be the guy that my pastor has joy at when he sees me coming I shared that illustration to extrapolate it out to Christian fellowship for being honest we know sometimes people don't have joy when they see us coming because we're bickering all the time, complaining all the time, full of conflict. There's a time and a place for those things, absolutely. But sometimes it's not just the gospel changing us so that we will love others. Sometimes it's the gospel changing us so that we are more lovable. So that people do have joy when they see us coming because they say there's somebody who comes and they're full of mercy. And they're full of encouragement. And they're full of humility. And they're full of love. And they're full of gratitude. And they're full of warm embrace. And they're full of grace. And they're full of joy. And they're full of Christ. And on and on and on and on and on and on. Do people think that about us? Do our brothers and sisters here think that about us? That's a convicting question. I've strayed far from my notes, so... Let's get back on task here. Real Christian fellowship. This is what I'm trying to get at, I guess. Real Christian fellowship is heaven-induced, gospel-shaped, and God-centered. It's not me-centered or my preference-centered. And it's built on the power and the grace of the gospel transforming all of us. 
And it's marked by heaven, by this divine element that's otherworldly. And for verse 3, it's to be expressed not just in smiles and hugs on a Sunday morning, but in regular prayer for one another, regular care for one another, regular seeking out one another. That's Paul's attitude here. Secondly, this morning, really quick, we've looked at fellowship expressed. Let's look at fellowship embraced. And I'll just highlight a few things from this point. In these verses, these three verses, Paul uses this plural indication three different times. In fact, verses 3 through 11 are packed full of these plural indications. And it's very important. He began his letter that way in verse 1 when he describes the recipients to all the saints in Christ Jesus. It becomes unmistakable by the end of verse 11 what Paul is doing. He's laying the framework for corrective instruction. Remember, there's an issue of division in this church, an issue of disunity. By chapter 4, verse 2, he's going to, he's going to mention two ladies by name, uh, Euodia and Syntyche, and he says, you ladies need to get along. And he's not just singling them out because he likes to call people out. It's likely that these ladies carry some sort of influence and that there's many others along with them. And there's beginning to be this fracture in the church's fellowship. And let me just tell you, Christian fellowship is in jeopardy when unity is fractured. When unity doesn't exist. Now sometimes there will not be unity. Sometimes there will not be harmony. And that's okay. One thing I learned in college was that conflict isn't always bad. Sometimes we do need to rub against each other. We do need to grind against each other. We do need to wrestle and share our thoughts and have honest conversations as hard as they may be because those things help us grow in godliness and and in truth. But when there's a long period of disunity and a long period of broken harmony, Christian fellowship basically can't exist. And so Paul is going to address that in this letter. He mentions those two ladies by name. Before them and after them, he gives other teachings like uh, you need to be humble or chapter 2, you need to count others more significant than yourselves. And he gives those teachings because unity is very important to the health and life of a church and this church is struggling with unity. So what he's doing here in chapter 1 is really unmistakable. He says the plural you in verse 3. He says in verse for the plural you all in verse 5 he says the plural your partnership in other words paul is saying my fellowship with you people my feelings and my affections for you people my thanksgiving and my joy for you people it's not picking and choosing it's for every last one of you i don't care whose side you're on you odia or syntyche i don't care your view on that or this Paul is throwing his loving, gospel-embracing arms around every last person in this congregation. And he's bringing them near in a fatherly bear hug and saying, every last one of you is of the utmost priority to me. I find joy in you all. Everyone. Again, what a radical concept, right? We're prone to be, this is a human nature diagnosis here, We're prone to be cliquish. We navigate to those in the same age range. We navigate to those in the same background, the same political affiliation. We navigate to those with the same outlook on life as us. I've even heard Christian people 
talking down about others just because they're from another country. And Paul says that this stuff doesn't matter. We're bound by something greater and every last one of you means something to me. And the reason he says that is because of verse 5. Because, that's the key word in this phrase, in this verse, and the key phrase is, your partnership in the Gospel from the first day until now. That's fellowship established. Fellowship expressed is in carrying brothers and sisters to God in gratitude and being filled with joy as you do it. Fellowship embraced is for every Christian, not just picking and choosing sides or, or what not. And fellowship established is a fellowship that's built on a commonality in the Gospel. Notice their consistency in their partnership in the Gospel. From the first day until now. Remember, Paul knows them from the first day. From the very beginning, Paul's saying, I was a witness to your partnership in the Gospel. And it has not wavered. It's continued on to now. Now, this is why I talk about fellowship this morning. Because the word for partnership there literally is fellowship. Because of your fellowship in the Gospel. The reason it's translated partnership is because in biblical times, they would use the word fellowship to denote partnership. And that partnership would denote business transactions. So, a partnership in a business, a partnership in a venture, or something like that, it often carried materialistic connotations to it. Chapter 4, Paul's going to highlight their materialistic partnership. They've sent him a gift to supply for his needs, and they've sent it by Epaphroditus, even one of their own, to minister specifically to him. They've met that material need, but Paul's going much further than that, and he's saying, you are a partner with me, as in a business venture, fellowshipping with me in the gospel, and that has a twofold element element to it in both receiving and advancing the gospel he says you have received the gospel with me you've believed christian fellowship only exists between those who are saved you're a partaker of the gospel you've embraced it you've you've loved it you've believed upon the sacrificial death and powerful resurrection of jesus christ You're not trusting in yourself for salvation. You're not trusting in your own ability to get to heaven or to please God. You're trusting in Christ alone. You have received the Gospel and it's changing you just like it's changing me. We are tied in the Gospel. But also, to be a partner in the Gospel means you are advancing it. In other words, why was Paul's heart so uniquely tied to these people? It's because, to Paul, the Gospel was everything. It was the supreme revelation of God. It was the truth about sin. It was the truth about salvation and forgiveness. It was the path to eternity with God. In chapter 3, verse 8, it's, it's the way He gains His treasure, Jesus Himself. The Gospel was everything to Paul. And here's a group of people he looks at and he says, you care about the Gospel as much as I do. You're as passionate and as dedicated and as devoted to the message of Christ as anybody. And it it makes me long for you and yearn for you and joyful for you and thankful for you. Church, let me tell you, if we want biblical Christian fellowship that Paul, just like Paul in this church here, 
then we must receive and embrace the gospel and we must work together to advance the gospel. In fact, by verse 12, Paul's going to report the gospel advancement in um, his prison condition. Why do you think he interjects that so early on in the letter? Because they want to know. Yeah, they love the man Paul. They also love the message. They want to know not just how Paul's doing, they want to know how the gospel's going forth. In chapter 1, verse 27, he's going to say, Stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. The imagery there in the, in the language is locking arms for the gospel. He's going to spur them on to continue doing that. Paul looks at these people and he says, You're, you're partners with me. You love what I love and you do what I do and it's all centered on Christ and you have embraced and believed and you have carried it on to propagate it into the world. Nothing binds our hearts better than working together for the glory of Christ. A lot of lonely people in the world and a lot of worldly solutions to try to Address our loneliness. In fact, loneliness and the despising of loneliness is a good trait, good design of God. The only good thing that wasn't good in the garden was Adam's loneliness. God has built it in our human DNA to be socially active with one another, to be in relationship with one another. And so there's a lot of answers out there and potential solutions on how to, how to relate to people and how to overcome loneliness and How to belong somewhere. That's a major desire for so many people. Belonging. The church knows the only true answer. It's in first being made alive by Christ, isn't it? But then by God's grace, once we're made alive by Christ, we're brought into the family of God, aren't we? And in the family of God, we find meaning and we find purpose and we find hope and we find life and we find... A family. And in that family, despite our differences and despite our shortcomings and our failures, and all the ins and outs, as Spurgeon says, we work together to make Christ known. And when we prioritize those things, Christ as our head and advancing the Gospel together, we find a love that begins to blossom and flower that's deeper and more lasting than anything else this world has to offer, I promise. Nothing will bind us together like our common Savior and the common message of the Gospel. It's the whole reason Paul loves this church like he does. It's the whole reason he embraces every last one of them. No one's left out. It's the only reason He's thankful to God for them. It's the only reason He has joy in them. Because they are gospel people with Him. If we are gospel people together, we will also find the same Christian fellowship. We have to receive it. And we have to move forward together with it, side by side. Father, we know that Christian fellowship, Christian community is part of your design and it is a good gift from you God we're not made to live in this life alone we're not meant to walk this Christian walk alone 
You have given us, gifted us, the relationships we have in Your church. But those relationships will fizzle and fade. And be in vain, Lord, if they are not built around You. And salvation in You. And sharing that salvation. So many things pull for our attention in our time. So many things threaten to occupy our lives. Remind us as Your people that we are to open our lives to one another and we are to love one another and we are to fellowship together physically and spiritually around the Gospel. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.